0: Hello, I'm Kevin Richard. Last week, we reported on a state audit on English language learner programs in the Wilder School District, a rural district that serves a large Latino student population. The audit findings and parental concerns about the ALL programs in Wilder come in the middle of a pandemic, which has posed unique challenges to Latino students in the K-12 and higher education communities alike. To talk about Wilder and to talk about the big picture, I sit down with a friend of the podcast, a repeat guest, J.J. Saldana of the Idaho Commission on Hispanic Affairs. Here's what he had to say. Well, J.J., thanks for joining us again. It's been a while since we've had you on the podcast, and that was a new podcast, but uh, a lot to talk about. We're coming out of this crazy school year. Very <laughs> crazy. <laughs> what are the takeaways from your perspective, I and mean, how has this affected uh, L- Latinos? students in the Latino community
1: well it affected a lot of it because you know when they went um all virtual we had we struggled with a lot of in um, rural areas with broadband we struggled with internet access we had some parents that were able to take their kids to the parking lot but then others who lived outside of town how did they get access so a lot of schools did a really good job as far as getting the kids um, their hotspots, but then others struggled because they didn't have the financial means to do it and then um, how do you get a hold of all these parents a lot of times parents um, in these rural areas work non-traditional work hours Mm -hmm. so they're either sleeping because they're working graveyard shift or they weren't available during so it it made it a little bit difficult but i was gonna say i mean one of the challenges
0: is if kids are home studying but parents are still Expected to work, right. working shifts, so how, or however. That and works.
1: a lot of parents said, "You know, I'm I'm struggling with algebra too. So how am I going to help my kid with algebra or whatever it was?" Sure. And uh, so, it was a struggle. I think um, more than anything in the Latino community, you know, they were anxious to have schools reopen, um, but at the same time they were like, "Do I send my kid? I still am scared to send my kid." You know, so um, it was it was an interesting year and a half.
0: Are there things that you saw along the way, uh, practices, procedures that maybe make sense going beyond this pandemic? I mean, did, did schools learn things along the way?
1: I think um, I think schools realized that they need to have more people um, working with you know the migrant population, um, with their ELL students. Um, for the most part a lot of school districts have one person dedicated to that and when you have a pandemic and this person's in charge of all of those you know that put a lot of work on them and so I think they a lot of schools districts that I spoke to told me that like I think we're going to lose our um, migrant liaison because you know she, she or he feels like they're overworked and they can't they don't have a day off even when um, one example was she said she gets off work and Goes to a grocery store and she's bombarded with people saying, "Hey, I need help with this." She gets home and her cell phone's just ringing. She's like, "I have no time off," and you know she has all these families that she's the liaison for, and then she also has to do all the translating, all the interpreting, and all these other things besides you know working with these families. So it's a lot. Of, it put a lot of burden on those um, positions.
0: And it sounds like this. It's an extension of a challenge we talked about way back before yeah. the pandemic. Right. The challenge of getting. Uh, Latino teachers into the schools. It sounds like you've got the same challenge. And so
1: we we released a report earlier this year and it had data on everything for the Latino community and we presented it to the governor um, before we presented it to anybody else. And he explained said that he wants to see us work on a grow your own, get more bilingual, bicultural teachers in Idaho. So um, my director has a meeting with Senator Ward Engelking who has a similar kind of plan, but with um, special needs. So we're thinking we can somehow double up and do special needs and bilingual bicultural.
0: So this all dovetails into Wilder and the story that Sandy Edge and Nicole Foy had last week on the state's audit on Wilder's ELL programs. First off, what was your reaction reading that?
1: I wasn't surprised because, um, and Nicole can tell you, because I was just texting with her and I said, you know, you've heard from Wilder as soon as you got into this beat. and. Mm-hmm. Um, a while back, um, we my office got, God, I can't remember how many letters from parents that were just concerned with all kinds of issues at Wilder. So it was too many for me to respond. Usually if it's one or two letters, I can kind of be the mediator between the school and the parent. But my director's like, this is way too much. So we submitted it all. We sent all those letters to the, the Department of Ed because it was, it was like 90 different complaints. And uh, so, and then, you know, they're like, well... It's local control issues, so they themselves struggled on how to handle the situation. And so I wasn't surprised. Um, we had parents that were always complaining about the iPad situation saying, mm-hmm. my kid is getting dizzy, is getting headaches, because they're on the iPad all day long um, doing stuff. Um, they're not getting anything from the teacher. It's all online, and this is before the pandemic. Um, there was just a ton of other complaints um, fr- from the school, and then a lot of parents felt that they weren't even allowed to go to the school board meetings um, they were told, no, you can't come. And so there was a lot of issues over there in Wilder. So with this, I, w- I really wasn't surprised.
0: And I was going to ask, I mean, to what degree is Wilder In Wilder's problems, are they unique? I mean, it sounds like the magnitude of complaints was a lot higher than you see with other districts. I mean, but the iPad program which seemed to create
1: right. so some i problems. think with wilder well I, I the problem that's really unique is a lot of parents stopped sending their kids to wilder they were sending their kids to um, parma or to caldwell and so I, I don't see that in a lot of other districts when you know um, i don't I feel, I feel like parents felt they couldn't complain because they were always being told you know you to keep your distance and you know we know what we're doing and nothing was being resolved and so um, we had just parents that were like what do I do? i and we told them they, they have every right to be at a school board meeting. Mm-hmm. It's an open meeting. They have a right to speak at these meetings, but they felt that they were intimidated and they couldn't do it. And so, um, but Wilder's been an ongoing problem from since I can remember. And, um, I remember even during Tom Luna's days, we struggled with Wilder. Um, one time, I was I I can't remember what the actual complaint was, but I went to Tom Luna and. Um, He couldn't even do anything. He was like, they don't even want me coming on to school. So it's, it's Wilder has been a big struggle for us.
0: Do you see it changing in any way? I mean, it felt like from the story last week, there was talk about there's been changes within the administration. I hope so. I'm I'm
1: hopeful. Um, But again, it's been so long that, you know, how sometimes you're like, okay, this is a good direction. But then, I mean talking about 10 15 years later and there's still issues mm-hmm. so I hope it I hope it's starting to change and I hope they see a, a, a different direction but um, I've, I was telling Nicole about it after I read the story and I said I hope th- you know these parents eventually find some kind of closure some kind of remedy to all their complaints because they felt attacked by saying we can't even come forward and issue a complaint because then there's gonna to be some ramifications against my child or against me and so
0: so the school year is out, but we're now into this summer remediation pro- project. I mean, you know, the state is putting a lot of money into summer programs to right. deal with learning loss. What do you hope to see come out of that?
1: Well, I'm hoping for that, I'm that we, I think I want to see people catch up because I feel like they feel behind during the pandemic. And so I'm hoping that a lot of these students are catching up. I was talking to President Fisher at CSI, and he wanted to open his campus to um, also help Kids that fell behind during the pandemic come on campus, and he goes, We have free internet, we have all kinds of services that maybe we can help with tutoring or whatever it is. And that's what I hope so too. I want to make sure that um, people who did fall behind or who felt like they didn't get anything are still able to um, either catch up to where they are or beyond. Mm -hmm.
0: But I guess you're dealing with some of the same challenges in making a summer program work that you faced in this past. Right, we
1: still have parents still like that are like, do I send my kid to a summer program still, like they still don't know how safe that is. So there's the pandemic worries. But then there's also worries um, about how do I get my kid to school right now in the summer? Like there's no blessing right now. Um, Transportation is a big issue with a lot of these um, schools. Um, and then, you know, I don't know, I think with the we have a lot of work to do when it comes to that. We're gonna try. We're I mean we're trying to serve as a resource our agency to every school district, but you know I'm the only person that covers education in our, um, and we're a staff of three, and so we partner quite a bit. I partner a lot with um, the um, state board of ed, and I partner a lot with department of ed, and then I also partner with the department of ed with the Indian ed coordinator because we have a lot of similarities with that mm-hmm. population, our population. So, she and I have just said okay. Let me see your resources. I'll show you mine. And how do we partner? How do we help each other? And so I'm usually at her events and she's at my events. And we're trying to just work together on that and see what we can do Um, before the pandemic. She and I wanted to do a tour where we started in Eastern Idaho, just kind of went all the way up to Northern Idaho, offering our services to all schools um, without you know we could do like coffee or a pizza party and say come talk to us and give us what your issues are in this part of the state so we can see what we can do to find for you but then the pandemic hit and so that was shut down
0: how do you restart some of that post-pandemic?
1: um well I need to talk to her and find out where she's at with that piece of it because the cost we would have to split it so that's one of the things and then um, I think we would need to re. Um, Contact. We need to contact those um, folks again to see if they're still on board to meeting with us. At, you know, because we had certain places that we were going to meet, and so find out if they are still interested, and then you know the surrounding areas if, if how feasible it is for them to travel for us. Um, and then our agency this summer, we're going to be doing some trainings that have been requested from us from different parts of the state, from different schools um, and districts, on um, just on how better to work with our population.
0: Let me ask you about early education. I mean, we're coming out of a session where lawmakers rejected the the federal grant for early education, but we're also seeing a lot more talk potentially going towards uh, all-day kindergarten and trying to provide state funding for all-day K. How do those issues... How important are those issues? In early
1: um, childhood education is huge for our population because a lot of times when our kids enter kindergarten, they're already behind their peers. And even though we see huge improvements by the end of school year, there's already that um, gap because they're, they're coming Because they're peers, yeah. And so every place we've traveled to, every superintendent we visit with, the first thing they tell me is that early childhood education is desperately needed in their district. And it could be from, you know, Blaine County you know in, over in Moscow they tell us they tell us everywhere that that's what they need and so um, I think it's crucial that we have it because our kids are coming in especially the monolingual Spanish-speaking kids they come in way behind already and even though they're making gains that year like I said the academic achievement gap is there and it stays with them until they graduate
0: right. you're not eliminating the gap you're narrowing you right. and you're, you're, you're learning English along the way having to learn right. really quickly and so
1: it's yeah so the attainment that they get is not the same so we we want to see early childhood and um, that's something that I think is needed and it's not just for the Latinx community it's across the board everybody is saying that it's something that's desperately needed
0: and from a socialization standpoint too it's, right. it's got to be really huge
1: yeah and so you know we you know we want our kids going into kindergarten already knowing numbers and already knowing all colors and we're not seeing that
0: it, it goes to the one of the themes of the legislative session this this whole backlash, this whole debate over you know, the agenda of education, I guess you could say whether it's early education or or k twelve or, or higher education. How did you view that
1: debate? That was interesting because a lot of it I felt was just rumor of like. I heard it from a friend who, heard like, I thought it was an REO Speedwagon song. Like, I heard it from a, a friend, friend who heard it from her, like, and Like, I just, I've, I, I wish they would have spoken to more teachers. I wish they would have spoken to more educators. Um, I wish that um, they would have spoken to a lot of the, even paraprofessionals, who know a whole lot more about what's going on with families in their districts than the actual teachers and, and whatnot. I wish that um, they would have contacted more people. I feel like they just were... Their mind was set on this and that was all that they were going to talk about. And um, like I said, they were just going on rumors and I don't think that's a good way to make decisions.
0: Do you see it any differently as we're watching uh, the Lieutenant Governor's indoctrination task force?
1: That task force, I mean, immediately what I saw was there's no diversity on there. And I'm like, you know, you have a state agency that would be able to give you some information. We delivered our... um, report to her and she uh, said that she was going to read it. I don't know if she did or not. Um, but there's, there's absolutely no diversity on there and it's very one-sided mm-hmm. and so I don't know what good that does if you're not going to have opposing views um, and being, being able to get discussed on there.
0: So what's your role at this point? You're just watching and observing it like,
1: well, like um, a lot of folks we, well, we are. Have no, we have no clout as far as to say, hey, mm-hmm. we want to come to this meeting because even if you attend it, they don't allow public comment or, you know. So, I don't. Know, I'm not really sure how beneficial it would be for us to even go to a, one of those meetings.
0: Had you sought a seat at the,
1: uh, the I, panel? I we, we didn't seek a seat. We've um, but we've we've contacted the lieutenant governor many times and left. Voice messages. We've never been able to get a hold of her personally, other than when we gave her the report, and um, and it was say, hey, utilize this because um, there was some situation where she was canceled um, to be. She was supposed to be a speaker at um, the Hispanic um, Business Association or one of those groups, and she, you know, people complained, so they said, well, we're, we're gonna uninvite you. And so my director's like, hey, if you wanna learn and work better with our population, give me a call and we'll be willing to work with you. But we never got like anything back.
0: As you listen to this dialogue, I mean, as as a person who called yourself, right. I mean, how does it resonate to your ear?
1: It's frustrating because I was just telling somebody the other day, I'm like, I feel like we were taking two steps front and lately though like now we've taken like eight steps back I think we were making some progress I think people were working and then we have I don't know how to explain these groups but they're just tangent on no nope, no nope, no nope, no nope. we can't be teaching this we can't be doing this we can't be doing this and it's really doing a disservice to not just people of color it's being a doing a disservice to all students and so I don't know I'm, I'm struggling to figure out how what's our best way forward
0: how does it look to you on the higher education front? Because there, you know, there were cuts in the higher education budgets that were directly a result of this. I've backlash. never
1: seen, and you know, I meet with higher ed institutions all the time, and so I've never seen them as concerned as they've ever been. Like now, whenever they respond to anything, because you know, our agency is always about working with you know, a minor, minority minor population. So now they they really think about what, how they answer or how they're going to move forward. They're like, uh, let me find out if we can do that or we can't do that. And before it was like, yes, 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 you know, we need to work on improving diversity issues, inclusivity, and we need to do this. And now I'm seeing that they're um, taking a s- step back and saying, let me find out what we can or we can't do on this situation.
0: So they're concerned about meeting with, with you. They're concerned about hosting events. Right.
1: And so, and um so, yeah, like like, for example, um, I hope I don't get them in trouble, but the college of Southern Idaho just became a Hispanic serving institution, and that's huge, and th- what that means is that they'll be getting a lot more um, Funding available to them because they're they have a twenty five percent or higher Hispanic right. populated um, student population, and, and the
0: school um, the state too. It's the re- first, reach, reach yes, the
1: and that's hu- it's huge. Um, so they get a lot of more federal money opportunities. I think they get more opportunities for um, housing, and whatnot. And but I know I saw some, you know like, do we make a big announcement or not? I was like, it's the facts. You guys are a Hispanic serving institution. It wasn't anything That you went out of your way to do specifically, but you did because you were Mm -hmm. recruiting students. You're recruiting all students, and being that you're in the Magic Valley section of the state, where there's there's a a, large Latino population, of course you're going to have that. And so, if you're doing your job,
0: you're going to recruit recruit what's on your
1: population, what reflects your population. If you have, you know, 25% Hispanic population in your area, then it makes sense that your college population is also 25%. And so um, but you could see a little um, fear in some of the higher ups over there saying, oh, how do we address this? Because um, I guess they got some questions saying, so are you now only serving Hispanic students? And it's like, that's not what this means at all. No. And the fact that you've been asking, that, I feel like it's more they're just trying to, um, you know, cause a scene or I don't I don't think they're, they're legitimately legitimately asking that question. I think they're just saying, asking that question to be kind of a jerk.
0: what do you see in the enrollment numbers i mean i'm writing about this this week and strictly speaking for the latino student enrollment numbers they're kind of mixed but there are a lot of trends in idaho enrollment that are that are problem when you think about rural students in-state so, students and so, first
1: yeah. gens well we still have like a very old school mentality with our and our family so like they don't want to send their kids too far away yet or whatnot so i we have a lot of conversations with parents like it's okay for you to send your kid to moscow they're going to be safe they're going to be that. Um, but we also have a retainment um problem because mm-hmm. i see that a lot of schools are saying oh we recruited we recruited but then the retainment, and I think you and I talked about this years ago too. Sure. Um, and, and it's still an issue. They tell us, you know, around sophomore and junior year in college, they're dropping out. And when we, the, the ones that do respond to us just tell us life happened. And I'm like, well, <laughs> I need more Can you than that to you kind know, of like, life in because your life. <laughs> that could mean totally different things to totally different people. So we need more um, information and we need more, um, you know, advisors. And, you know, one thing i was talking to some of the colleges this um, past spring and summer is you know how you know we're talking about you you know be, you know being inclusive but how many um, how diverse is your staff you know how diverse is your higher staff like how many you know deans do we have of color in idaho and the answer is none mm-hmm. and so you know how do we work on building that because you know you're saying yes yes yes. we'll help you with the you know grow your own with more teachers but we also need them in higher ed as well it's not just in k through 12 it's k through 20 that needs to have that and um, we need to have more um people that like advisors we need more counselors that...
0: so it's not just finances but it's the campus support level. Right. It's the support network. It's the comfort level.
1: Right. And so, you know, if I know that like my, I think I saw my advisor maybe twice and one time it was he was just like, okay, you just need to sign this. And I was like, okay. So I think more conversations with advisors I think is crucial, especially for first time college students.
0: And I know you're going to be going back out into the field this fall. You're right. going to be doing events on the campuses trying to, uh, to get the message to high school students about pursuing college. Does the message change at all in this moment in time coming out of the pandemic?
1: I think, well, right now, we're, so our, that, what you're talking about is the Hispanic Youth Leadership Summits. And yes. so our goal with that is college prep. So our message isn't gonna change because it's FAFSA workshops, letting them know what they need to have be prepared. And then we also do some STEM workshops. We do leadership building workshops. And then because of our, um, surveys. We're doing some law enforcement surveys. Um, 31% of our students said they want to go to law enforcement, which surprised us. And luckily for us, all the um, local police departments have said, oh, we'll come and do a workshop. This works for us too. And then health. And so we're working with St. Alphonsus and St. Luke's to do workshops and be there and answering questions on that. But our main goal is college prep. And um, so, you know, the University of Idaho has created a great um, curriculum for just specific for this um, summit and it's um they use loteria which is spanish and mexican bingo because one of our things was don't just lecture the kids because they'll fall asleep and so make sure that everything is hands-on and so and they're like well we want to do fafsa i'm like it's important but how if are you, you going to make electric, it fun <laughs> right to lose and so quickly. um they are coming in and they and it's become one of the more popular workshops so um it's um stuff like that so our message isn't going to change because we still want them to pursue. But we also bring in military just in case they want to go that route, mm-hmm. um, and we understand um, that maybe they might need a different kind. So you know we're working with. Um, I can't remember the name of the group right now sorry but it's um technical colleges and technical mm-hmm. skills like plumbing and the the, yeah and so we because we know that college isn't for everybody but know that you have options and um make sure that you know just because you're not a 4.0 doesn't mean that you can't get in and that was w- why we started the is because we were seeing what my boss called um low-hanging fruit that they weren't being recruited but they were still great kids and great they still had an option and they just didn't realize it so it's
0: Just about spelling out all of the options Mm -hmm. for these uh, students, whether it's four-year college or two-year college, or C. And that's what's fantastic
1: that you just mentioned that because some of some of the kids think that oh. I'm going to a junior college, that's for me. But then when they get to this event, they talk to a four-year institution. They're like, whoa, I didn't realize this is more for me. And it's also been vice versa. Sure. Where, um, they're thinking, oh, no, I'm going to a four-year. And then they talk to a CSI or a CEI. And they're like, actually, no, this makes more sense for me. And so that's actually kind of one of the great things. And then the scholarships. Every um, institution that's there offers scholarships. And so um, obviously, and it's pretty
0: exciting to see the kids get those scholarships, I mean, that's
1: a... Yeah, and so and then 75% of those students that receive scholarships are on a college campus the following year, so that's really great. Um, and the numbers are a little bit skewed because some of the students probably receive scholarships from more than one institution, so they have to pick the, the one, right. so...
0: Well, JJ, it's always good to catch up with you. I always appreciate your time. I'm um, so, thanks for so coming. glad to be
1: here. I'm a huge fan of your podcast. Oh. Congratulations on going solo. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Thank you. Again, that was JJ Saldanya of the Idaho Commission on Hispanic Affairs. If you would like to catch up on our coverage of Wilder, you can find the story on our homepage. That would be IdahoEdNews.org. The story on Wilder was written by our Sammy Edge and by Nicole Foy of the Idaho Statesman. And I wanna take a second to give a shout out to Nicole. She is leaving the Statesman and she's leaving Idaho here in the next few days. Nicole has done fabulous work covering Latino issues for the Statesman. She leaves a huge void in Idaho journalism and I wish her all the best. That's gonna wrap it up for the podcast this week, but there is a lot to catch up on at our homepage at idahoednews.org. We have complete coverage from this week's uh, meeting of Lieutenant Governor Janice McGeehan's indoctrination task force. Go to the home page for that. And also, if you haven't been reading my series on higher education enrollment, the Missing Students series, you can find all five stories from that also on the homepage at idahoednews.org. Also, I urge you to keep an eye on us on Twitter, also at idahoednews. That's where we uh, tweet out links to our stories and any breaking bulletins that, uh, that, that come up. Follow us on Facebook at Idaho Education News and join the conversation there. And check back next Friday for another edition of the podcast. Until then, this is Kevin Richard. Have a great weekend and we'll talk next week.